This is the Dyad Podcast, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCreary. Sometimes you read a journal article and you're like, yes, this right here, everyone needs to read this right here. That's the way I felt a few weeks ago when a colleague of mine passed along the article, Hybrid Femininities, Making Sense of Sorority Rankings and Reputation. In the article, which is published in the journal Gender and Society, researchers Simone Ypsilanda and Mariana Oliver talked to over 50 members of historically white sororities about how they perceive and explain the costs and benefits associated with different aspects of femininity. What they found was that a lot of what sorority members think about femininity depends on where their sorority is within the campus social hierarchy. Women in top-tier sororities benefit from a hegemonic femininity that rewards wealth, sexual appeal, and social excellence, but express their own reservations about a system that bestows those benefits on them. Women in middle and lower-tier sororities generally feel more freedom from policing over their bodies, their fashion, and the ways that they socialize. And of particular interest to me, they talked to women who found themselves struggling to fit into middle-tier sororities who were trying to improve their social standing. Simone and Mariana's qualitative examination of the tier system overlays quite nicely with some of the things we've been learning in our research at Dyad Strategies specifically that placing too much priority on one's place in the tier system is bad for sisterhood. Some of their findings really help us uncover and understand why that is. So, before you go any further and listen to this episode, go read their article. I placed the link in the show notes. Now that you've read their work, I'm happy to let you listen to our conversation. All right. I am here with Simone Ypsilanda and Mariana Oliver from Northwestern University. They are the authors of the recent article, Hybrid Femininities, Making Sense of Sorority Rankings and Reputation. Welcome to the podcast. I really appreciate you all coming on today. Thank you for having us. So excited. I want, I want our listeners to get a chance just to get to know you a little bit and, and your interest in kind of how you came to, to study this topic. So, so start off just by telling us a little bit about uh, yourself and, and kind of where you are in terms of your, your studies, your, your line of research, uh, interested in, in just, yeah, learning a little bit more about the two of you. Simone. Okay. Um, so I'm an associate professor in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern. I'm a sociologist and I study race and gender in educational settings and I I will confess I've always been fascinated by Greek life, even though I went to a college where there was no Greek life, but, <laughs> but I just, I've always been fascinated by, you know, social organizations that have hierarchies. Yeah, um, and I, my name is Mariana Oliver. I'm in a JD PhD program at Northwestern and I'm in the sociology department and about a year away from finishing, hopefully. And yeah, I got to know um, Simone kind of fortuitously and she had this project she was really excited to, to work on and get started and asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. And I was like, yeah, sure, it sounds fascinating. Uh, I also have no, no personal experience with Greek life but I've also found it really interesting. And my research interests very broadly have to do with organizational 
design and structure. Um, so naturally this was a really good fit for me and my dissertation is looking at the org structure and design of police departments. Awesome. It's interesting that, that neither of you were in sororities and, and did this research. And, and I'm someone who follows the research around fraternities and sororities pretty closely, probably closer than most. And research into this can usually fall into one of two buckets. There are people who are within the industry who are in fraternities and sororities who have a very pro fraternity sorority bias. And then there are, there's the opposite, right? There are those who are, are not in fraternities and sororities who think they're awful and, and, you know, do the research. It almost seems like it's designed to be a, a, a hit job. And your all falls within neither of those buckets. You're, you're people who are just casual interested observers. And the article is definitely not a hit piece. It's very fair in terms of you, you look at these phenomenon and you, you talk about how these groups fit within to the, the, the broader culture, but without really being overly critical. It, it really is a fascinating piece. And I'm, I'm interested in talking about how this article came to be. Neither of you in sororities, but both uh, obviously aware of and, and interested in sororities. What inspired you to conduct this research? Not being members of sororities, how did the tier system even get on your radar in the first place in terms of uh, an area that was worthy of your, your scholarly attention? Oh, thank you. Well, first of all, can I just say thank you so much because it's music to my ears that you didn't find this to be a gotcha piece. Because I really, I actually, from the very beginning, from the very inception of the project, I was like, I don't want to write a gotcha piece about historically white Greek letter organizations. Not because I don't think they have problems. I just want to be really open to their strengths, their weaknesses, the good things they're doing, the bad things they're doing. And I really you know, also so many of our participants were these just really intelligent, self-aware, ambitious women. And I actually, a lot of them, I found myself really admiring them. I mean, they showed a huge amount of agency and creativity and kind of refashioning sorority life to do what they needed it to do. So I really didn't want to write this kind of piece that would be a gotcha, you know? Yeah, um, and it, it wasn't at all. And, and that was one of the things that I really appreciated <laughs> in reading the article is that it was just very... You, you asked the questions, your synthesis of the things that they shared, which was so insightful, both what they shared and your synthesis of it, um, it you just let the chips fall where they may. And, and, and I think I got a lot from reading the article and again, just qualitatively explained a lot of the things that we had seen from a data perspective. So it really is a nice companion to, to a lot of the things that, that we've talked about in our research. So yeah, talk to us a little bit about how it came to be. How it came to be. So actually, it's a funny story. It's a, one of these serendipitous research things, which is um, I have a wonderful colleague, Mesna Dustin, who's a social psychologist and is in my hallway, and I adore him. And we were talking and hanging out, and he said, I would love to introduce you to someone who works in um, like a student affairs type capacity with a lot of students who receive Pell Grants um, and about like you know, potential things that different universities could do to help with belonging and inclusion, right? Um, and so I went to meet with someone in this office and I'm not a social psychologist, I'm a sociologist, so I really have no expertise in designing interventions. It's really not my jam, but I got really interested in talking to her because what she was telling me was, you know, we have a real issue with a sense of belonging. So at a lot of universities, we've increased the number of students who are not upper middle-class white students but we haven't made that 
final push to create really welcoming environments for them. And so I said, you know, I said, I probably am not the person for designing interventions, but could you just talk to me about some of the kinds of issues that you hear when you're counseling students? Like I'm really interested in the student experience and the student voice. And she said, well, actually, I think we were meeting around the time of rush. And she said, well, right now we get a lot of like tearful calls about I'm losing all my best friends. The only kids I know are from my hallway and they're all rushing and I don't feel comfortable rushing. And so am I just gonna be totally alone next year? Like this is, could be devastating socially. You know, and this is an age where social connections are important for all of us, but I mean, particularly for right an 18 year old, um, it was, you know, in a new environment and far away from home. So I, we just started talking and I actually just started thinking, you know, in some ways it's interesting to look at the, you know, in many ways, it's interesting to look at elites to think about how they contribute to shaping experiences for non-elites. And I was sort of thinking in that way. And I thought, let's actually interview people in Greek life about this. And to be totally honest, at, at the time, I think this was before we had Mariana on board and it was Sarah Thomas, who was another graduate student and we're working on other projects together. And I just thought, you know, we're two white women and let's interview women in historically white sororities and, and leave fraternities aside for later because we thought women would be more open to sharing with us. And that's how it all started. That's fascinating. And a couple of things that really stand out to me in, in that one, the connections between your research and the work that, that Nicholas Syret has done. And I, I, I interviewed Nicholas in one of the previous episodes. And, and one of the things that he said that really stood out to me that you touch on without directly addressing in the piece, but when you're talking to these women in, in the case of your research who have social prestige, who really at, are at the top of the, the social ladder on a college campus, and they are the people who are going to be on the top of the ladder everywhere else in society. Nicholas talks about how fraternities really have dominated our perceptions of masculinity, not only on the college campus, but beyond that, right? And so I, I think of your research in the same way, this, this hybrid femininity, and we'll get into some of these concepts in a little bit, but how traditionally and historically white sororities and the women in those groups have really defined femininity, yes. again, not only on college campuses, but, but even more broadly because of their place just in the, in the yes. social hierarchy. And what's interesting is how much they themselves, like it's not the case that just because they are sitting in this position of power and privilege, it's so easy for them either, right? Like I think we were able to show that they themselves experience a lot of contradiction and dissonance. They're incredibly aware of that, especially yeah. the women in the top tier groups. What struck me is, is, yeah, the dissonance that they have of being aware of the privileged place that they have, but also fully taking advantage of the system that gives them that privilege. It's a really, you can yeah. tell a lot of them really struggled with that, that, that kind of line that they had to walk in yeah. terms of acknowledging it, but also taking yeah. advantage of it. Yes. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and Marianne, how did, how did you get involved with this? Yeah. So, you know, I think I touched on this uh, earlier, but also kind of by coincidence and things just work out in a funny way, but, um, Simone is, is a sociologist, but she's not in the sociology department, but has worked with people in my department and, you know, everybody raves about her. And so she just, 
was on my radar for a long time as someone who I really wanted to get to know and, and work with and, and learn from. So, you know, I kind of just pestered Simone endlessly and until, you know, she had a project for me to work on and, and you know, I didn't really care what it was. Um, you know, thankfully it's a project that I was really interested in from the get-go. Um, and also, you know, I think my prime methodological training and interest is interview methods. And so, you know, it was just a really good fit in that regard too. And, and someone said, you know, I really want you to help do these interviews, which for me was just an awesome learning opportunity. Very cool. And I, I admittedly jealous. I was talking to someone recently, you know, in my own doctoral program, I was working full-time. I was in in charge of Greek life at the University of Alabama and did the PhD on the side. And wow never got a chance to do that. Right. So I was just, it, for me, I didn't really dive into the research until I got into dissertation mood. So what a, uh, or dissertation mode. So what a cool opportunity for you to, to get to engage in this research as a, as really in your first few years of a doctoral program, that's, that's such a cool opportunity and, and to get oh. to publish just, yeah. Awesome. Um, We're so thankful and so lucky. Oh, can I just say to Mariana very quickly, became really fascinated in the interviews with the, with how they would talk about recruitment. So, you know, like every interviewer has their own thing and Mariana would always point out like, they're telling me these amazing things about recruitment. So that was really useful for me. And I, and I'm, I want to dig into recruitment because it's one of the big, I guess, pieces of, you know, breadcrumb that you drop out there at the end of the article of like, yeah, there's some real implications for recruitment here, but you don't really get into it. So I'm, I'm really curious, Mariana, to get your thoughts on that. But, but let's start by you know, really kind of framing for our listeners the, the, the article. And, and, you know, I've encouraged them to read the article before they listen to the podcast. So if you haven't listened, or, or rather, if you haven't read the article yet, you know, pause the podcast and go read it now, because it will, it will definitely help you make more sense of our conversation. But, but what questions were you most interested in answering when you conducted this research? And, and talk about the research within the broader context of what you already knew about hybrid femininities and you know, sororities and femininity. Admittedly, that's not a body of research that I'm uh, as familiar with. Just, just talk us about kind of the ways you were trying to uh, build some deeper learning and understanding on this topic when you began. Mm -hmm. Maybe, so I'll start and then Mariana, will you fill in? Because sure. yeah. So, I mean, when we started, first of all, I knew nothing that, about it. I didn't know a tier system existed in Greek life, to be totally honest. I, my, I mean, when we started this research, my understanding, I knew about Rush. You know, I'd heard of, that there was this thing called Rush that was really time consuming and that, you know, involved a lot. And then that was pretty much all I knew. Since I study race and gender, I was very interested in variation among women in sorority. So I was thinking like, okay, we know that not everybody goes into a sorority, but once they get in, what are their different, like, right? Like, I mean, this is the 21st century. Like, this is not all white women from upper middle class families anymore. So once they get in, what are the experiences? So let's capitalize on that. And then once we started doing the interviews very quickly, the tier system was an obsession for women. Like we didn't have it. Like initially in our interview guide, we didn't have questions about the tier system because I didn't even know enough to ask him yet. Fascinating. You know, I'd read Paying for the Party, which is this wonderful book by Elizabeth Armstrong and Laura Hamilton. And it discusses stories and it, 
you know, it talks about top versus bottom houses, but I didn't know that there was like an explicit. So at the university we studied, it's explicit. Like people can say, okay, these are the top tier. These are the middle tier. These are the bottom tier. It's like very clear cut. And so I think once I realized that this was such a source of preoccupation for the women, because it kept coming up, even when we didn't ask them about it. And when I realized it was so explicit, I thought this is a really good platform for understanding how women negotiate kind of gendered femininity and class because it's so explicit. And, you know, it's not the case that you could be a rugby player and with all the rugby players and you're a science major. So you go to all the, it's that they're all kind of, I mean, what they were telling us is that they're all ranked kind of according to beauty and socializing and social skills and wealth. So it's not, it's a very particular kind of hierarchy where there's only one criteria, right? And so I thought, well, that gives us a really good opportunity to understand how women make sense of social status. Cause like when they talk about the tier system that's what they're talking about. <laughs> that's amazing to me that you didn't set out to even make the research about that, that it, that it just, it came up in your conversation. I was so clueless, like so naive, <laughs> just no idea. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's totally right. And like, you know, I think like Simone said, I think we were, so I think I knew about the, the tier system just through, you know, anecdotally from, from when I was in college, but I think I, I took for granted as Simone said, just how kind of universally accepted which, which sorority houses landed where. So it's not like there was it's not like we had to do a lot of digging into, okay, where, where do these houses fit? I mean, that was crystal clear from the beginning and, and universally agreed upon, which we just thought was super interesting. And it's, it, it's fascinating to me that it became such a, an obvious thread as you were doing this research, because I'm going to guess that Central University is the place where you had the most access to students and you don't have to confirm or deny that, but knowing what I know about that institution, what we found in our research is that social status importance, this, this, this concern about your place in that social hierarchy is very much a, uh, you know, a multi-level model. It's a, it's a campus level variable, right? So it's the most predicted by campus culture and there are campuses where it matters a lot. And there are campuses where it doesn't matter that much, but on any given campus, the most variance on that construct is going to be explained at the campus level, right? And, and my guess is, is that Central University is probably a campus where it's not even that important, right? Like relative to some of the other institutions, even that the women in your research made reference to, oh, you know, the the sororities in the South, they can, you know, and I've worked at Alabama. So anytime people talk about sororities in the South, I just assume that's what they're talking about. And it's a huge deal there. It's the deal. It's everything is about the tier system at Alabama and a lot of other schools like Alabama. So it's just, it's a fascinating concept to me that even on a campus where it's probably in proportion to other campuses, not that big of a deal, that it still is a really big deal and something that they immediately began kind of processing and, and thinking through. That That's just fascinating to me. Well, I think it's hard Absolutely. to explain. I mean, once you're in the system and you know that you're middle tier or like, right, it takes on all the significance because also it plays a role in a recruit, like, right? Like you didn't get into top, like, I, right. I, 
it just very quickly acquires all this meaning. And it's fascinating yeah. in that, it, I, I made a joke earlier, but I, I was kind of talking over you. It's like Fight Club, right? Like the first rule of the first rule of the social tiers is that you don't talk about it, but it's there and everyone yes. knows it's there. Yes. Uh, but but that might be unique to Central, right? And that because in Alabama, it's talked about a lot. Like, oh yeah, we're we're old row, we're top tier. Like it's a it's so overt, like there's nothing subtle about it. And it's like oh. you know, at, at this institution, it's it's definitely there and it's very explicit, but we don't talk about it, right? But once you're in, it's just so obvious that it's there. Um, yeah. It's fascinating. Oh, that makes me want to do a comparison study at a different kind of- study. That's exactly where I'm going with that. Like what, if, if we could quantitatively say, well, you know, here's a campus where we did this research where social status importance is very low. Women don't really care about it that much. And then you, you juxtapose those findings against a campus where- Oh, it's a big deal and everybody cares and it literally frames everything about the experience. Would 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 we see similar patterns or would we would we see something totally different? That would be a fascinating follow-up to this. That's fascinating. We should talk. All right, we will. Oh, we'll, yeah. we'll talk more. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. No, that's that's really interesting. So so just in general, tell us what you learned in the research. Um, what, what were the major themes and, and what were the things, I guess, that surprised you the most as you, as you got into this? Yeah, I mean, I think like you were talking or, or touching on earlier, I mean, certainly, you know, that the existence of this hierarchical tier system uh, was definitely, you know, a really key finding, um, you know, and not just not just that this hierarchy exists, but that, you know, there's very much like one criteria that women are judged against. And that criteria is incredibly gendered and classed. And, you know, I think the sort of three bucket items that fall into that is, you know, money, beauty, and social skills. Um, but on the other hand, I think, you know, this is something Simone and I talked about a lot is, you know, just because you have money and beauty, that's not necessarily determinative of, okay, you're going to land in the top tier no matter what, because if you don't have the social skills, uh, you know, that's really going to work against you. And so I think that's something that we found really interesting when we were doing our interviews was in a lot of ways, you had these women who came from high socioeconomic status, uh, families where the mom had been in Greek life, they were a legacy, Etc. But you know they themselves characterized uh, themselves as awkward or shy or you know lacking in social skills, and they were like, yeah, you know, I think I ended up in the middle tier or bottom tier because you know I just wasn't really good at socializing. You know, and I think the other piece Simone and I talked about was something that really came through in the interviews was just how much pressure women are under and feel in their freshman year to join. Greek life, you know, and, and whether or not that's uh, unique to Central University, you know, who knows, but it, it definitely seems like because so many women go through the Greek rush process, you know, it's, it's very hard to form a social group if you're not part of that process. Amazing. So that, that touches on something that, Simone, you referenced earlier that I meant to comment about. I said I had two things and then I forgot it, but, but I just remembered it, that Central is a deferred recruitment campus. You don't join until the 
winner of your freshman year. And there's this big push in our industry right now that more and more campuses are looking to move in that direction. And, and there's arguments to be made either way, right? Of, there, I think there's definitely some, some benefits to deferred, but there's also some drawbacks. And I think you all have touched on one and it's that those relationships you build in that first semester with the people on your floor in your hall, yeah. those get established. And then there's all this pressure, like, well, all my friends are rushing, but either A, that's not my thing, or B, yeah. I don't feel like I can afford it. And so yeah. the relationships that I forged are now being ripped from me because they're yeah. now going to be so focused on the fraternity or the sorority. And so what that does for that sense of belonging and connection and community yeah definitely a downside that I've never yeah. really heard articulated like that before. That's a, that's a really fascinating yeah. thing to understand because I don't, I don't think any of the proponents of deferred recruitment have ever considered how that can impact the, yeah. the belonging and connection, not only of the people who join, but maybe even more importantly, the people who don't join. Well, yeah. I mean, I think someone needs to look at like sense of belonging and mental health also for the students on the floor. Like, you know, if your whole floor is rushing and you're not, and that's your whole social world because you're 18 and you just, you know, you just moved in the dorm. I mean, we did hear, I heard from other people not in Greek life that that is just such a hard time if you're in a dorm where a lot of people are rushing. I, I can only imagine that that's that's a fascinating thing for folks to, to think about and understand. I'm also, as you all explored the tier system, one of the things that really fascinated me was this notion, and, and certainly this isn't, this is not something that only you all have written about. This is a concept that, that showed up that others have written about, but this notion of a femininity tax uh, and, and the women in the top tier groups who who have to pay that tax, right? They have to dress a certain way. They have to look a certain way. They have to constantly present themselves in a certain way. Whereas the, the women in the middle and certainly the bottom tier, you know, completely unwilling to pay that tax. Uh, I can just show up in my pajamas and my hair all disheveled and looking a mess and nobody cares, right? Because that's kind of who we are. Talk to me a little bit about that concept of, of the femininity tax and how that showed up in particular with the women you talk to from those top tier sororities. Yeah, this was, okay, so I will say here that this is one of those things where you just read and where a researcher reads an article and it's like, oh, I just unlocked a new, you know, like you read some theoretical article and it's like, oh, I've unlocked some deeper understanding of why these things were observing our, that sort of happened with this article um, about the femininity tax and premium. Um, but yeah, so women in top tier sororities talked a lot about the pressure. I mean, right, like feeling like we always have to look hot, <laughs> be attractive to men and, you know, really rigorous partying requirements, you know, and this is, we're talking about a really highly selective school where women came in with really high grades and SAT scores and are really ambitious. So, you know, the partying demands can really conflict it, you know, when they get really high, it can actually conflict with being able to devote yourself to a career, which these women were very career focused. Um, and then some women in middle tier and lower tier sororities talked about, you know, I don't have to wear makeup in my house. Like I don't have to perform in this way. And so I have more freedom. So that was just so interesting to see the inside of that <laughs> femininity tax, right? And, you know, they're, they're benefiting from it, but they're also paying for, for that, that, privilege. 
And, and, yeah. and, and as we think about further research, right, the, and you, again, you, you reference this in your literature review, but that there's a, there's a downside to paying that femininity tax just in terms of, of mental health and wellness, that, that this pressure and the stress that you put yourself under. And that's another dot that the research, particularly around sororities, needs to connect in terms of the, the pressure that that puts on the members of those groups and, and the mental health issues that are, have to be inherent yeah. in, in one's willingness to, to pay that tax. It's, it's, it's a fascinating concept. Absolutely. And I, I will just add too, I, you know, I think on the one hand, it was really interesting because women in the top tiers, right, are clearly under pressure to look a certain way and, and, and act a certain way, um, which feels like it's, you know, uh, work. And on the other hand, though, they would consistently use language like, oh, but, you know, our, our house is super chill. Like, we're really chill around here. So again, you know, touching on these contradictions where on the one hand, like, clearly seems like being a part of the system, um, you know, it requires a lot of thought and effort. Uh, but on the other hand, wanted to convince themselves, you know, oh, but, you know, we're so chill. Every yeah, sorority in America thinks they're the chill laid back sorority. I've learned that in my own research. <laughs> well, I right. think they actually understood. I mean, Marianne, I love it that you said that because I think they understood that it's kind of, I think they actually understood that, listen, I can get a lot of social advantage and social benefit from conforming to these high feminine, you know, traditional feminine standards. On the other hand, I also understand that in today's context, it's stigmatized to like be out there trying to be hot and attractive to men. Like this is, you know, we're in the 21st century, like this isn't the 1950s. Um, and yeah. so that was, you know, when they say they're so chill in some sense, I think that's like the deeper thing that's going on is like, I want those privileges, I want those advantages, but I also know that I'm not allowed to say, I just want to be thin, white and blonde. Like you, you just can't do that anymore in this context, right? And. I think that's where the hybrid masculinity helped us understand some of this stuff because it's like, you know, hybrid masculinity is about affluent, educated men who kind of want to distance themselves from traditional masculinity while also getting maintaining the advantages from it. And I think that was really helpful. Yeah, for that dynamic. absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and it's, it's a contradiction, right? I mean, it's such a fascinating concept to me in that these women who are are happy to take advantage of the 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 privileges that come with their as you note their their social desirability their sexual desirability their willingness to to go and be social right and that's one of the things you touched on as well just the pressure to like yeah like to be top tier that means you have to go to these parties and you have to show up and you have to put yourself out there yeah. And their their complete willingness to engage in all of that, but also being conflicted about the system that supports that, right? And 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 how they are privileged by being at the top of uh, of this kind of social food chain. Uh, these contradictions really are at the center of your research and this whole concept of of hybrid femininity. Help us understand just where those contradictions come from, right? Help us understand the, the, the mindset of someone who says, yes, this is terrible and I hate it, but I'm part of the system that supports it, right? I mean, that, it's, it's such a contradictory two thoughts to hold in your head at the same time. Help us understand where that comes from. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think to be clear, I, I also, Simona and I are very aware and, and want to make clear that I don't think this type of, of mental cognitive contradiction is unique or specific to Greek life. You know, mm -hmm. I think um, the more you're, you're embedded in elite institutions, whether that's educational institutions or professional institutions, we are all parts of systems with a lot of contradictions. And so I think it's very natural to then be both critical and defensive all in the same breath. Um, you know, and I think specific to elite educational institutions, you know, I think especially nowadays with sort of this, the state of the world and politics, I think it's natural for, for young people to see those contradictions and, and be aware of them and even articulate them. And at the same time, want to take advantage of the resources that are available to them because there's a reason that either you or your parents are paying a very high sticker price. And, you know, I think it, it makes total sense to want to take advantage of all the resources that come with that sticker price. And I also think, I mean, another interesting facet of it is in some sense they're grappling. I don't, I don't think this is necessarily conscious, but like at a university like Central, they're I mean, a lot of women told us, well, I joined because I wanted to make friends. I mean, right. So like this is the main vehicle for having a certain, you know, I mean, upper middle class white students are socialized to think about college as a time when you really explore your identity, you socialize, you party, right? Like we have these class and race scripts for what college is. And at a university like Central, Greek life is really the vehicle for realizing that. And there aren't really that many robust alternatives. And so to some extent, they use it as the only vehicle that's available to them um, while they also have a lot of criticisms of it. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a resource rich thing that's just there that, to take advantage of. So, I mean, it's not like they arrive on campus and oh, there's this other thing I can join that's gonna provide the same level of, you know, connection, partying, friends, you know, boys, all of this status. Yeah, so that, that's, that's what we see, right? I mean, depending on the context of the, the, the school, how old that Greek system is, how large that Greek system is, you have more or less students showing up knowing from day one that's that's going to be part of my experience here, right? I spent a couple of years at the University of West Florida, totally different, new school, very salt of the earth, middle-class blue collar kids. And very few of them came there knowing that was an experience they wanted. And they joined because they wanted connection or they saw it as a good social outlet. But at a place like that, that social tier system exists but it's much more fluid, right? Because you don't have that really established hierarchy. So one sorority might be, you know, top tier, but then another sorority could have very easily a couple of really good pledge classes and the whole thing gets turned on its head. We're at a place like Central or certainly at a place like Alabama. And I used to talk about this a lot. The system there, the, the, the tiers are so fixed. You could spend an infinite amount of time and resources. One of those middle tier groups that wants to climb to the top tier and it's like you can't do it because the, it's established it's baked into the cake there's no there's no ascendancy and you see it more in fraternities because fraternities the top tier fraternities will get in trouble and they'll get closed down and so then a new fraternity will kind of 
step in and take their place. So on the fraternity side, it's a bit more fluid, but on the sorority side, it is what it is. And it's, it's not really going to change. You might move within your tier, but you're not going to jump tiers. That just doesn't happen. Oh, so it's like, it's like a fixed caste system. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Yes. You've got your, your serfs, your, your gentry and your nobles. And that's, that's kind of what it is, right? I mean, it's uh, it's it's very fixed, and you you might huh. you might move up a little bit in your in your cast, but you're not going to join the nobility anytime soon. Oh, it's so yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I think you know Simone and I were talking about this, but I think I think that's so true. And on the other hand, you know, it was fascinating how they're in the middle tier. Some of the women we interviewed in those middle tier houses you know, the, the minute that it seemed like there was a slight possibility that they might move up in the tier system, all of a sudden they went from, you know, being very happy with their, with their status in the hierarchy and, and really not caring about it to all of a sudden it's like, oh wait, we need to rethink how we're recruiting. What do we want our, our pledge class to look like so that we can move up in the tier system, right? So the slimmest possibility of that, as you said, and it, it might be a really slim one and maybe it doesn't happen, but it seems like they really jump on it. And, 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 and the damage it does to the sisterhood, that, that was one of the coolest things that I saw in your research in terms of its connection to ours. We've long seen that that care about social status is inversely correlated with a lot of things related to connection and belonging, but to see it specifically play out in those groups, in those interviews, what, what were the pseudonyms for the two young women? Um, Chloe, uh, and Rose. Uh, Chloe and Rose. Yeah, uh, th- those were so fascinating to me because they so beautifully illustrated the problem that, and, and maybe it is just, it's a, it's a thing that's very specific. And this is where I want to dig in a little deeper with our own research and kind of how, how your work has, has motivated me to, to identify specifically those mid-tier groups, Mariana, to your point, who've come to that realization, who are like, oh, maybe, maybe there is an opportunity here for us to move up. And the, the very clear damage that that does, right? I mean, it was so obvious in your conversations with those women, how disconnected they felt, how discouraged about the direction in which their chapter was moving. Uh, it, it, it really was damaging to, to their sense of sisterhood, their sense of connection. It, that was, to me, one of the biggest takeaways from, from the research. I, I'm curious to learn more about, in particular, those two interviews, Chloe and Rose, and, and just the way they talked about this struggle that they find their, their chapters in of trying to, yeah, move from the middle tier to the top tier. That was off. I have to say, as a parent, that was the like listening to those interviews was the. I was just like, this is a horrible experience for a young woman. I mean, and it it just it makes me wonder if this happens in other like does this happen in non historically white Greek life? I mean, they talked about being literally hidden and knowing that they're being hidden. Like the other members don't want them to be there because they think that it's a bad image for their attempt to move up. So it's just like you could not be like feel more excluded and rejected like and devalued literally like it is literally like we do not want you to be there because we think that your presence will make the people we want not want to join um yeah there were tears about that in the interviews um 
and it didn't feel like the, the damage could ever be undone. Like talking to those, you know, the we have subsequent longitudinal interviews and it keeps coming up. So I think once that harm is done, it, it's, it's a real breach because um, I mean, it's really, yeah. I mean, we think about the damage that being excluded from Greek life does, but I think we also need to think about sources of damage within Greek life, right? Um, and then there was also, you know, there were a couple women who said, well, when we were trying to move up, we became more willing to, you know, socialize with so-called rapey fraternities, which I think is this, you know, it's this same thing where the emphasis, you know, you, you become too willing to do too many things in the name of status, basically. That's right. We'll, we'll do anything, right? Like if there's a chance we can move up, everything becomes a sacrifice at the altar of, of, of social status. Totally. Our sisterhood, our safety, our sense of connection, everything, totally. right? Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think, oh, go ahead, Simone. Oh, no, Marianne, you go. Well, I was going to say, you know, in terms of, right, like, the, the, who knows what types of irreparable harm this is doing, you know, not just to, to individuals and, and the organizations, but also uh, to the extent that you sort of to the extent that recruitment is kind of professionalized, right? And and this is something we, we heard a lot, right? Is like, you know, the, you're building skills here, you're you're learning how to interview people, screen people, et cetera, et cetera. So to the extent that you you really take that to heart, you know, you have to wonder what does going through something like this and, and seeing it legitimized uh, do for you in, in your professional career and and how are you going to use that in terms of how you screen other people in your professional life, right? And, yeah. and what are the criteria that you're using, uh, which is ultimately, Absolutely. right? Like, you know, our groups talk about, oh, you know, our recruitment is values-based and we're looking for, for women with similar values. And certainly some groups, that is where they are, right? Those probably mid-tier groups who have not taken the bait and and fallen into this chasing of social status, my guess is that's where they are because they're allowed to be somewhat selective, certainly more selective than the bottom tier groups. And so we're able to really focus in on and, and, and in our research, what we find is that the groups with the best sisterhood who have the deepest sense of connection and, and affinity and love for one another they tend to be from the middle tier. And, and, and so they're allowed to really focus in on these are our kind of people, right? Like these are the women and it's not about how you look and it's not about how much money your family has. It's about the type of person you are and the way you're going to fit in with the type of experience that we're trying to build. But so few groups and your research illustrates this so few groups have the luxury of being able to make those decisions, right? Because if you're top tier, you have to use criteria that will allow you to maintain that status. Or if you're trying to become top tier, the value stuff goes out the window. It's like, she's hot. She likes to party. Yeah. Give her a bid. And then if you're bottom tier, you know, on a lot of campuses, I don't know what it's like at central and you didn't really get into this, but a lot of those groups in other places feel like, look, we just take who we can get. We can't be selective because we're not socially desirable. And so we just kind of end up with this random hodgepodge of people so on any given campus, you may only have 15, 20% of your chapters that have the freedom and flexibility to make 
those values-based types of decisions, right? Like we're, we're selecting people based on altruistic criteria and not just their looks in there and the size of their father's 401k or just taking who we can get. So it, the, the system perpetuates that the way they recruit. I, I love Mariana, your word of uh, professionalization, right? It, it is very much a trained process. And I love that you all learned about bump groups and all that, because to an outsider looking in, that's like, whoa, like that's such a crazy concept, but that's, that's how it is, right? It is a very finely tuned machine and a very um, well-oiled process. But yeah, your, your research really demonstrates the lack of flexibility that most chapters feel that they have in terms of who they can offer membership to, because they, they box themselves in. Yeah. Well, and I'll say too, with the, like the Chloe interview, I mean, I remember one thing that really struck me is that she's a woman of color. And so she then had to wonder if part of that being excluded was because of that. Um, And so the racial dynamics got really, I mean, historically white Greek life has its own, I mean, it's a racialized system, but I feel like on an, for in, also for individuals within the system, recruitment can become incredibly painful because that's the moment when some of these things surface. And then other women of color told us, well, I'm just getting used as a token. So, you know, it just, either way, it's very fraught. And that really, that argument, Simone, is, is really at the center of the abolished Greek life movement. And I'm guessing you all did your research before that really started up, but it would be fascinating now to do follow-up conversations with some of the women who express those anxieties to see which side of the fence they've landed on because it wouldn't surprise me at all if some of them had said yeah you know the system is the problem so let's just let's just take down the system because they're clearly struggling with how the system has has treated them we are so we are following up and it is fascinating because that first group of women is now post-college and so they are grappling with the fact that they were in sororities in college and how to portray that in the and in the wake of abolish and like how people might read them it's fascinating so to what extent did you get into that i know it's not the point of your research but i'm fascinated because i have a theory and and my theory goes as such one of the things that we've seen in our research over the last five years longitudinally and we've seen this only with sororities is mm-hmm. that you've seen a skyrocketing trend line in terms of when you look at people's motivation and why they're there, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's becoming increasingly social, right? Whereas before, you know, if, you, mm-hmm. if you rewind even 10, certainly 15, 20 years ago, a lot of women joined a sorority. You think about the women who joined sororities, like I see this as a great opportunity for leadership and to get involved on campus. And it's going to be a springboard that's going to help me not only in college, but after college, but with the way society's changing and our views around race and class and privilege are changing, that fewer and fewer of those really highly motivated women who are ambitious and who see a sorority as a good springboard for them to get plugged in and involved, mm-hmm. my guess is that fewer and fewer of them are seeing the sorority as a good opportunity to do that. And part of it's because our perceptions of sororities have changed as we've become more uh, aware of issues around race and class and social justice, but also because college campuses are doing a better job providing 
those same opportunities for people who aren't in fraternities and sororities, right? For a long time, Greek life was the only game in town, but now we've got residential learning communities and, and so many other ways to get students plugged in. Right. And so I'm, I say all that to say, did you all see that, particularly with the women who you talk to who see themselves as very career motivated, very ambitious? This is an academically elite institution. Mm -hmm. Do you see them wrestling with being in a sorority at all and how like the benefits versus the potential disadvantages? Is this something I'm going to have to explain one day? Did, did that come up at all in your conversations? Yeah, so, well, also what I'll say, so this isn't in this paper, but it will be in the future papers, but a lot of these women deactivated. So this paper is based on their sophomore year, and we see really high rates of deactivation junior and senior year, and some of it is that, and then now, you know, these interviews are ongoing, but um, my wonderful student Gershwin Penn is interviewing a lot of these women, and some of them tell him, you know, it's not that I lie about having been in a sorority, but it's not the first thing I would volunteer. So, you know, now I'm in medical school. Now I'm in doing a, po you know, now I'm doing, I'm in doing research. Now I'm, you know, I'm pursuing my career outside of college. And yeah, it's not exactly the kind of thing I want to let new people know about. So I think for some of them, there is a concern about how this gets interpreted, you know, for a highly successful, ambitious person. And obviously that, that has implications not only for those people, but for the groups, right? So what you end up with now is less and less of those altruistic, highly motivated women who maybe were the ones who were keeping, from a social culture standpoint, keeping things in a good place. And now those women are increasingly deciding, I don't want to be in a sorority. Like I, that's, not, that's not anything at all I want to be associated with. So now the only people who are joining, and this is what our data kind of suggests, they're only there for the social aspect, right? They're there for the party. They're there for the good time. And that obviously that looks very different at a place like Central because of the types of students who are going there. But, but apply that to a place like Alabama, right? Like where you, you still have some really bright students, but we're, I mean, it, not, not even in the same ballpark in terms of the overall aptitude. Um, it's, it, it, it's potentially a recipe for disaster in that you start having sororities seeing some of the same issues and problems and challenges that fraternities have really wow. been the only ones dealing with right like and i you know the conversation about alcohol in fraternity houses and you know fraternities can host parties and we can't you yeah. know that's never going to change because that's all about liability and risk management and their insurers are never going to let them change those policies but it's fascinating to me that i think for a long time sororities at the national level have felt immune to some mm -hmm. of the problems that fraternities have had in terms of legal exposure and liability. But as their membership becomes more and more made up of members who are only there to exploit the social benefits and aren't interested in all the other stuff, uh -huh. that's going to cause problems for them. And, and I think you all really uncovered some of how that's playing out in real time with, within the, the experience. Yeah, that's really, I would I would say that I feel like the most idealistic, the people who were most sort of idealistic, a lot of them deactivated. I mean, they felt pretty frustrated. Even before the abolished Greek life movement came along. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, that's another thing that I think is funny is a lot of these issues are not new. Like 
when I read about abolished Greek life, I think like these issues have been present and pressing and burning for a long time. You know, they might've just spiked into national attention, but I mean, they were there. And, and I guess, you know, my fear, I, I say my fear, right? As someone who's invested and cares a lot about the fraternity and sorority experiences, you see certainly sororities at the national level aren't deaf to this. They are doing a lot of really good work around diversity and, and equity and inclusion. Um, they're changing policies. You know, several groups in the last six months have changed their legacy policies, for example, right, which gave preferential status to legacy members, clearly, right, discriminatory, race, class, everything. Yes. But part of me wonders, like, at this point, is it is that too little too late? Like, is the damage yeah. already done and just changing your legacy policy yeah. at this point is putting lipstick on a pig? Like the, the damage is already done. I really worry about yeah. that. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Fascinating. So towards the end of the article, you all make reference to the manner in which chapters recruit. And, and it sounds to me that really going into the research, that was what you were interested in. You were particularly interested in, in recruitment. Um, and so you, you throw that out there that there's clearly some issues with the way we recruit, but you really don't delve into the particulars there. Um, how, based on the conversations you have had and are continuing to have, how does recruitment contribute to the issues that you've uncovered in your research and what specific changes would you propose? You know, if, if you could sit in front of all the decision makers in, in National Panhellenic World and say, these are some of the things that need to change about the way we do this, what are, what are some of the suggestions you might make? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, I think, right. I mean, I, I don't know that recruitment was necessarily on the forefront of our minds initially, but very quickly, once we started doing the interviews, it became so clear that this is a huge part of the story that we needed to understand. That's where a lot of the interesting stuff is happening. Um, you know, I think for me, something that I started picking up on, and I remember talking to Simone about this is, you know, I think we touched on earlier this idea of fit, right? And it's like this amorphous concept that just gets tossed around all the time as if it's some sort of concrete criteria, but, but it is a huge way in which houses justify their selection criteria. And I think, you know, in terms of the harm it does, I mean, certainly, you know, I think it harms people in the sense that to the extent that you internalize that messaging and, and you just say, okay, well, like I wasn't a great fit for X, Y, Z, but, but also, you know, there's uh, sociologists like Lauren Rivera and she's done really fascinating work on the idea of fit within organizations like specifically professional organizations. So law firms, consulting firms, and, you know, this is, this is a phenomenon that we see carry over beyond the college campus. And law firms recruit based on fit all the time. And we just take it for granted that that's okay. And so, you know, I think, to, I don't know, it's worth interrogating, okay, how, how are organizations, whether they're college sorority houses or otherwise, using the idea of fit to, to get away with recruiting big criteria that maybe we're not super comfortable with on paper. 
Yeah. I mean, and the hidden curriculum of recruitment just seems so biased in favor of kind of upper middle class white students who, I mean, I wouldn't presume that, I mean, I think a lot of students of color feel like Greek, historically white Greek life is hostile to them and don't want to be part of it anyway. And there's a really wonderful network of other, you know, things to get involved in. But to the extent that historically white Greek life wants to be open to students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds and students of color, I think they have to make more of the hidden curriculum explicit. I mean, so many women we talked to who had not come from, who were not legacies said, you know, I only really understood recruitment this year because I was on the other side of it. I mean, it's really, it's really opaque. It's not very transparent, right? So like, they don't Absolutely. know what it is, you know, they don't know why. Also, I mean, I, one thing that was really interesting to me is that women talked so much about the sense of over-regulation and being over-controlled. You know, you can only have water, you can't have food, you can't there, you know, can't talk about Barack, booze, and boys. There's the three B's that are taboo. <laughs> There's all these rules. And it really, I mean, especially, I mean, it seems so gendered to me, right? The it's like the control of the woman of the feminine body. And there's so it's so regulated and it feels very kind of constraining. And and the fact that it's not transparent, I think, is a real barrier. Um, yeah. And on top of it all, you know, as earlier, it, it's made to feel and seem super high stakes, you know, so I, I think um, women end up taking this process incredibly seriously, put a lot of pressure on themselves. It, it has the appearance of being very formal, even though, again, there's very little transparency around what's actually happening, you know, and you have to dress a certain way and you know, you have a schedule of you need to be at X house by, uh, by Y time, and you can only be here for five minutes, and then you move on, right? And so it's like, you're really moving through like a factory process here. Um, and I'm sure it's easy to feel like you have very little agency in what's happening. Yeah, and, and when it, as we look at that. as we look at a change in generation like that, those things are only going to get worse, right? In terms of like, a generation of women who don't want to be controlled, who don't want even older people in their chapter, let alone these people 500 miles away in their national headquarters, regulating how yeah. they dress, how they act, the decisions they make. Like that's, you yeah. don't, you don't have to have a PhD in sociology to, to look at what's going on with this generation and, and understand that that's not going to be a good, uh, a good formula for you in, in the future. Well, and even like having particular outfits you have to wear, right? Like, and having to stand outside in the cold in a jacket, like it's very, it, it is a very controlled experience. Oh, and some women also told us that at some of the top tier houses, they would check their coat labels and see if they were Canada goose, you know, to see if they had money. So there are a lot of built-in subtle things that can happen during recruitment to create, you know, class, social closure around class. So yeah. we could talk forever. I, I do want to be respectful of the time. Last question, where does the research go from here, right? You all are clearly continuing this line of research. You're continuing this conversation. What, what manuscripts are in the hopper? What, where, where are we going with this research from here? Oh, thank you. Well, so there's another manuscript um, in the hopper that's about how women try to negotiate the problem of sexual assault. So like what steps do they take to try to address that on their own? Um, and right now I'm really excited because 
we're interviewing these women, but you know, years out. So seeing how they think about these issues now that they're out of college and also abolish Greek life. And then um, I'm working with someone to interview men in fraternities to look at that side, which I'm really excited about. Um, Specifically related to their perceptions around sororities in the social tier system? Some of it is that, and then some of it is looking at, you know, how they, yeah, how they cope with their role in these problems. Like, how, how do they think they play a role in the tier system or in the problem of sexual assault? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think these interviews, we have so many, and they yielded so many fascinating possible lines of inquiry that, you know, I think there could be papers for, for years on end. That's the, that's that come the, beauty out of of, the beauty of good research is that it yields more questions than answers, right? So great work. Uh, their article again is Hybrid Femininities, Making Sense of Sorority Rankings and Reputation. It's in the Journal of Gender and Society, publicly available, free online. You don't have to have a subscription to get it. Uh, I'll post the link to the article in the show notes. Uh, Simone, Mariana, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you. We'd love our pleasure. Thanks so much. So when I started the Dyad podcast, this was the sort of interview that I had in mind. Simone and Mariana aren't known in our industry. They're not publishing in Oracle or any of the other publications that our members are probably reading. Even though they should, they're probably never going to show up at an AFA or an AFLV to present. Although, you know, Ryan O'Rourke, Jason Bergeron, if you're listening to this, maybe we can do something about that. They're never going to be hashtag AFA famous, but we have a lot to learn from them. These are people outside of our industry, outside of our field, who are doing really good work. uh, And they're doing really important research that can help us, those of us who are doing the work, better understand the research out there in the social sciences that can help us do a better job supporting the fraternity and sorority experience. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, a production of Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.